Thank you, BJ, uh, for your music today and for your kind words. And uh, once again, I want to express my thanks to the pastor for his invitation to come today. And if he lives in the will of God, I think he'll invite me back some other time. Uh, <clears throat> I also appreciate the hospitality of Brother Jonathan and Leah. It's been great to be here. And one of my college classmates is here. And she is a member of your church, and uh, that's Beth Nichols, and it's good to see her uh, this weekend as well. When I uh, went to seminary after I graduated from Mercer, I had just taken unto myself a wife, and uh, I knew that I was going to uh, have a lot of responsibility to care for a wife, to help with our finances, to... Uh, study because I was taking a, going to take a full load and I began to ask around the campus to find out if they had any crip courses, Beth, any easy courses. And somebody said, well, not really, but uh, there's a Dr. McDowell who has a New Testament survey course and he never gives an exam during the course of the whole semester. No pop quizzes, no midterm exam, no term papers. He says, for, they said for years, semester after semester, he always asks his students at the end of the year, at the last class, to write an essay on the life and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And I thought, well, you know, I can do that. When I was an RA, I made a map of all of Paul's missionary journeys. And so uh, I enrolled in that class. And sure enough, we went right through that semester. I had a friend by the name of Butch who sat next to me in class. And sometimes we'd talk about the class after the session was over, after the class session was over. And we were kind of comparing notes. And we were thinking about how we were going to write our essay on the life and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Had no midterm exam, no pop quizzes, breeze right through it. And we came to the last few days, and we got some papers of other students who had been in that class, who had written their essays, and who'd gotten A's. And we read their essays, and we felt like we were ready. So we went to the class for the final day, and Dr. McDowell turned around on the blackboard. They didn't have acrylic boards then. They turned, he turned around on the blackboard, and he said, now, I want you to do an essay on this one thing. And I turned to Butch. He turned to me. Thumbs up. We had this. And Dr. McDowell wrote on the blackboard, please critique the Lord's summer sermon on the mount. Well, he threw us a curve. I wasn't expecting that. But I did know that the Beatitudes, uh, of course, were in the Sermon on the Mount. I knew that that's where the Lord said, we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And so I began to write some things that I knew about the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, after about a half an hour, I'd written about everything I knew. And I looked over at Butch, and he had already gone through one of those blue books like we used to get for our tests, for final exams. He'd fill one up, and he was on his second book. And there were about 18 or 20 pages in those books. And I scratched my head thinking, what in the world is he doing? And so I went ahead and turned my paper in. And most of the other students did too, because they knew less than I did, or maybe no more than what I did about the 
uh, about the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So we went outside and everybody else dispersed. And I kind of hung out there waiting for Buddy to finish. And he was in there for over an hour and finally came out. And I said, man, what in the world were you doing in there? He said, well, I just wrote down, dear Dr. McDowell, who am I to critique the Lord's Sermon on the Mount? What I'd like to do is write an essay on the life and the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Sometimes you have to improvise, don't you? Well, I want to speak to you tonight. By the way, uh, Brother BJ, uh, I haven't always preached without notes. Uh, I actually started doing that in 1992 when I was pastor of Peachtree Corners Baptist Church in the Norcross area. And my wife had been telling me for years, she said, you can do a better job if you don't preach with notes. And so one day I decided I was going to try that. And uh, the Lord seemed to bless that. So ever since that day, I have tried to preach without notes. And it is a frightening thing to try to do, especially when you get my age. But uh, Dr. Morgan, my doctor tells me that mental exercise is as important as physical exercise. So I'm still trying to um, memorize sermons and scripture verses and do the best that I can. But uh, I just expose myself to you as being very vulnerable. Any sermon, I could draw a blank and be embarrassed and embarrass the congregation, so you just pray with me that I'll get through these messages, or this message tonight. But I have chosen Luke 19, verses 1 through 10 as the text for this message, and the title is, A Vertically Challenged Man. A Vertically Challenged Man. So let's look at these verses, beginning with verse 1 of Luke 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. There's the vertically challenged man. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation... I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your marvelous grace, your long-suffering to us your mercy, your unconditional love. We're overwhelmed when we think of how much you care for us. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would reciprocate, that we would love you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our souls. 
And we pray tonight as we study this passage of Scripture that we would resolve to give of ourselves more completely to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the little song says Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was a vertically challenged man. If there were to be a movie made about Zacchaeus, and if I were given the responsibility of casting characters, do you know who I'd select to be the part of Zacchaeus? Danny DeVito. Wikipedia says that he's four feet, 10 inches tall. And my understanding is that in most of the movies that he plays in, he is playing the part of a crooked, conniving individual. And that pretty much describes Zacchaeus before he met the Lord Jesus Christ. Heard about this man who went to see his physician for his annual physical examination. And before he got to the physician, Of course, he had to see the physician's nurse. And she said, I've got to take your vital statistics. Would you please tell me how much you weigh? The man said, yes, ma'am, I will. I weigh 170 pounds. She said, well, step on these scales. He stepped on the scales and she said, no, you weigh 210 pounds. She said, how tall are you? He said, I am six feet tall. She said, well, let me measure your your height. And she did. And she said, no, you're actually five feet, seven inches tall. She said, now I've got to get your blood pressure. And he said, well, how in the world do you expect that to be correct? When I came in here, I was a tall, slender man, and you've already made me short and fat. But you know, the truth is that none of us measure up very well on God's scale. Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the standard or the glory of God. Now, the standard of God is Jesus Christ. He's described in the Bible as holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. He's also described as the unique, virgin-born, sinless Son of God. Now, this really is a story of a man who became a child, because in this narrative, we see Zacchaeus running through town, which was very unusual for men of his position. Wealthy men and government officials did not typically run through the towns of the Mideast in the first century. They wore long flowing robes. And in order to run, they would have to gather up their robes and run through town. And that was very unusual. But here he is running through town like a schoolboy following a parade. And he also climbs a tree. Most unusual. You see, he's driven by curiosity. John Calvin said that curiosity and simplicity is often a preparation for faith. So here is Zacchaeus running through town with the curiosity of a child to see Jesus Christ. And I've often wondered what he was thinking as he ran toward the place where he hoped to see Jesus. He must have been thinking, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Why are so many people flocking to him? What am I missing 
So he's asking all of these questions, the questions that a little child might make. But you know, Jesus said, you cannot receive the kingdom of heaven except you come as a little child. I think sometimes when we get older, we become self-reliant. Perhaps we become proud, egotistical. We think we know all the answers, and we do not have the curiosity of a child. So it's a good thing to have questions to explore the answers, as did Zacchaeus on this particular day. This is also the story of a short man, a small man, a vertically challenged man who had a very significant job because the Bible says that he was the chief of the publicans, which I believe means that he had supervision over all of the publicans of Judea. In other words, he had the responsibility of supervising all of their work, all of their activities. The Bible also says that he was rich. In other words, he received a percentage of all of the taxes collected from all the tax collectors under his jurisdiction. So he was a wealthy man. He probably also knew that Matthew had left his responsibility as a tax collector in order to become a follower of Jesus Christ. He probably also knew, according to Matthew 9, that Matthew had hosted a great party where Jesus Christ was the special guest. Matthew invited all of his sinner friends and tax collector friends to the party. I'm quite confident that he gave Jesus the opportunity to speak to all those people and share with them the way to eternal life. Now, why was Zacchaeus attracted to Jesus? He wasn't crippled. He wasn't blind. He wasn't sick. He didn't need any money. Not that Jesus could have provided him any money. But why would he seek Jesus Christ? In verse 3, it says that he wanted to see Jesus to find out who he was. In other words, it sounds like he is seeking for Christ. But in verse 10, we're told plainly that Jesus Christ was seeking after him. And God is the divine seeker. In fact, he sought Adam and Eve when they were hiding from him in the Garden of Eden. And the scripture says that Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. And today the Holy Spirit through the church has the responsibility of seeking out the lost and winning them to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are four things that I believe that Zacchaeus probably said in this narrative. I'm sure he thought them, and I think he might have said them. First of all, in verse 5, it says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. He saw Zacchaeus in the tree. And at this point, I think Zacchaeus must have said, He sees me. Did you know that the Lord is looking at all of us right now? In Psalm 11, verse 4, it says, His eyelids behold, or his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. And in Genesis chapter 13, uh, chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, we have one of the Hebrew names for God. You probably know some of the Hebrew names for God Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Rapha. 
But this is a rather um, obscure name for God. It is Bir Roy. And do you know what it means? The God who watches. He's always watching us. He's always looking at us. He's always seeing us. Number one, he sees us when we sin. In Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 17, God is speaking to Jeremiah about Judea. And he says, mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face. Neither are their iniquities hidden from mine eyes. In other words, God is always looking at us and he sees us when we sin. You can no more hide your sins from God than you can run away from your own shadow. He sees us when we sin. In John chapter 4, Jesus encountered the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well in Sychar. She came to draw water in the middle of the day. Jesus was sitting on the edge of the well and he engaged her in a conversation. And Jesus said to her, why don't you go get your husband and bring him to the well so I can meet him? And the woman said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're telling the truth. But you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. They had a conversation and Jesus explained to her that if she would drink of the water that he could provide her, she would never thirst again. I believe he shared the way to eternal life with that woman and she trusted him as her savior. And we know that she ran back into the town and do you remember what she said? She said, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did is not this the Messiah. He knew all about her. There was no way that she could hide her sins from the Lord. And there's no way that we can do that. We might hide in the darkest corner of our house and sin, or we might go to some remote corner of the earth and sin, but it doesn't make any difference to God. He sees it all. He sees our sins. Number two, he, he sees our sorrows and our suffering. And that's good to know. If you remember when Moses appeared, uh, when God appeared to Moses out of that burning bush on the backside of the desert in Midian, God asked Moses if he would deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And do you remember how God started the conversation? He said, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. They had been in Egypt for 430 years, but God hadn't forgotten about them. He knew what they were going through. He knew they were suffering under the merciless hand of the taskmasters. He knew their sorrows and their suffering. By the way, there is not a tear. There's not a trial. There's not a tragedy that any of you face that God doesn't know about. And that's good news for us. In Psalm 56, David is beleaguered by his enemies. They're coming at him from every direction. He feels hopelessly as uh, if he is going to be killed. And he looks up to the heavens and he cries out to God. 
And he's begging God to avenge him of his adversaries and spare his life. And in the midst of his prayer, he suddenly has an epiphany. He comes to the realization that God knows where he is and God is aware of his circumstances. And in verse 8, David says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You collect my tears in your bottle and you have recorded each one of them in your book. Did you know that there's not a tear that you shed that God doesn't know about? Isn't it comforting to know that God is aware of our sorrows and that he's aware of our suffering? He sees our sins. He sees our sorrows. But he also sees our surrender and our successes. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to prove himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. In other words, he knows when you're doing good. He knows when you're serving him. In fact, you cannot give a cup of cold water without him wanting to reward that and recognizing that. In John chapter 1, Philip brings Nathanael to Christ. Christ has never met Nathanael, but it's apparent that he knows all about him. Because when Nathanael comes to Christ, he opens his arms to receive him. And he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, before Philip brought you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. In other words, Jesus saw him. He knew he was a virtuous man. He knew that he was a righteous man. He knew all about Nathanael. And it's a wonderful thing to know that God not only knows our sinning, but he knows our sorrows and he knows our surrender. He knows when we're completely yielded to him. In fact, in Proverbs 15, verse 3, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding that which is evil and beholding that which is good. So he's well aware of each of us because he sees us. He is the God who watches. He is the God who sees. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. That means there's nothing that escapes his attention. He knows the good from the bad, the true from the false, that which is commendable against that, as well as that which is contemptible. He knows everything about everybody. You think about the person that you know better than anybody else. Your spouse, your sibling, your child, your parents. You see, God knows everybody better than you know anybody. And he saw Adam and Eve when they were hiding in the Garden of Eden. He saw Jonah when he was in the belly of the whale. He saw Daniel when he was praying in the uh, lion's den. He saw Elijah sitting under the juniper tree. He saw the three Hebrew children when they were in the fiery furnace. He saw blind Bartimaeus when he was sitting by the side of the road in uh, Jericho. He also saw uh, blind Bartimaeus. Uh, He also saw the Gadarene demoniac as he was running through the cemeteries of Gadara. And he saw Zacchaeus when he was sitting in that tree. And he sees you and he sees me, not just when we're in church, 
But he sees us early on Monday morning and late on Saturday night and all the hours in between. So Zacchaeus said, he sees me. And when Jesus looked up and saw him, according to verse 5, he said, hey, Zacchaeus. At this point, I think Zacchaeus said, he knows me. That was a new revelation to Zacchaeus. But he said, he knows me. Have you ever thought about the fact that God not only sees you, but he knows all about you? In Psalm 147, verse 4, the Bible says, He telleth the number of the stars and calleth them all by their names. Current day astronomers tell us that there are 70 sextillion stars in the universe. That is a seven followed by 22 zeros. He's counted them all, he's named all of them, and he remembers their names. But it gets better. In Luke 12, verse 7, it says that he's numbered the hairs of our head. Now, those who study such things tell us that the average human head has about 100,000 hair follicles in it. And each hair follicle has the capacity of producing as many as 20 hairs in the course of a lifetime. So if you multiply... 100,000 by 20, that's 2 million hairs on the average human head in the course of a lifetime. Statisticians tell us now that there are 7.7 billion people who live on planet Earth. But God didn't just starting, start counting hairs with this generation. He's been counting them ever since the beginning of mankind. Some people say that there are as many as 108 billion people who've lived on the face of this earth since the first man, but I don't agree with that. I'm a young earth creationist, so I think it's more like 20 to 25 billion. But if you multiply 25 billion to 200 million, that's a lot of heads and a lot of hairs, isn't it? And yet he has counted them all. Just absolutely amazing that he knows all about us. And he's counted the hairs on our head. So the truth is that he sees us and he knows us. Last year, I went to the Faith and Freedom Coalition at the Sloppy Floyd Building, which is across the street from the Capitol in Atlanta. And in the Empire Room up on the 20th or 22nd floor, they have their luncheons. And so when I got to the meeting, uh, I had to sign my name on a little name tag. You tear the name tag off of a piece of paper. You put the adhesive uh, side to your lapel or your coat or your blouse. And everybody can see your name positioned right there for about 48 seconds. And then it falls off. Mine actually fell off before I got to the table where I was to sit. I picked, that, picked it up, put it back on, sat down. There was a pastor who was sitting to, seated to my right, and we got into a conversation. And then a lady came and sat next to me on the uh, left side, and we entered into a very pleasant conversation. She was a congenial lady. Other people came until our table was filled. We'd get up and greet them. And uh, then we had an invocation, my name tag kept falling off. We got up to pledge allegiance to the flag. It fell off again. And then I couldn't find it. It wasn't on the floor. It wasn't on the table. I didn't know where it was. 
And then we were invited to go across the room to pick up our box lunch for the meal. And when the lady next to me got up, she obviously had sat down on my turned upside down name tag. And she was walking over there and I could just see her bending over like that and everybody reading Dr. Gerald Harris on her posterior. I was absolutely horrified. Fortunately, it fell off after she took about two steps and I took a swan dive and got it almost by the time it hit the floor and wadded it up and put it in my pocket. But God doesn't need any name tags. He knows us by our name. In fact, in Isaiah 43, verse 1, God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you and called you by your name, and you are mine. Now, outside of my Baptist family and my immediate family, there are not a whole lot of people who know who I am. In fact, I am primarily known by numbers. Did you know that? In fact, the federal government knows me by my uh, social security number. Medicare knows me by my identification number. The Cobb County Water System and Georgia Power Company know me by my account number. Wells Fargo Bank knows me by my routing number. Delta Airlines knows me by my frequent flyer number. The Georgia Department of Motor Vehicles knows me by my driver's license number. I'm so seldom in my church that there they know me only by my envelope number, 5170. The Georgia Department of Correction knows me by my... No, I don't have any number. (laughs) But God knows me by my name. You know, it's kind of interesting that in uh, John 6, 63... The Bible says that Jesus knew beforehand those who would believe not and who should betray him. In John 13, 38, he knew that Peter would deny him. And if you go through the Bible, you'll find that Jesus and God knows all about us, who we are, what we're doing, and he knows us by our name. And so he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus. By the way, do you know what Zacchaeus means? Most Hebrew and Greek words have a meaning. My my name, Gerald, has a meaning. Gerald means mighty with a spear. I can't wait to get a spear in my hand. I'll just be as mighty as you please. But Zacchaeus means pure one. Pure one. That's the last thing that we would have thought of when we thought of a tax collector, especially a crooked one. I mean, we would have thought of him as a low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel. But Jesus didn't see Zacchaeus for who he was, but for who he could become. And did you know that's that how the Lord looks at us? He didn't look at us for what we are. He looks at us for what we could become. And he looked at Zacchaeus and saw that he could become a believer. That Zacchaeus could become a man who would give half of his goods to the poor. He would become a man who could possibly give four times the amount that he had falsely accused people of. 
He saw Zacchaeus as someone who could become a tremendous witness for the kingdom of God. So Zacchaeus said, he sees me. He knows me. And then Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I'm going to stay at your house today. At this point, I think Zacchaeus said, he wants me. He wants me. I'm sure that that was an incredible thought to Zacchaeus because he perceived himself to be a crooked guy because he knew that he had falsely charged the people from whom he had received taxes. He knew that he was running a crooked business and it was probably incredible to him that God wanted him, that Christ wanted him. But you know, it's good to be wanted, isn't it? When I was pastor of that Colonial Heights Baptist Church in Jackson, I said this morning that our children were teenagers during part of that time, and, and uh, they loved sports. And on Saturday morning, my boys would call up some of their friends at church, and they'd get together a pickup softball game in a local softball field. And uh, they would get 18, 20 people to come to play softball on Saturday afternoon when the weather was permitting. There was one little guy that was rarely called, but he always showed up because he just figured we were going to have a softball game. And he was the antithesis of an athlete. He kind of reminded me of Steve Urkel on Family Matters. Do you remember him? He wore those flood pants and suspenders, had a high-pitched voice, thick glasses, colorful cardigan sweater, Well, that was Buddy. I mean, he just looked that part. But he would always be there. And we'd pick captains, and the captains would choose sides. And he was always standing right in front of the captains doing like that. Wanting to be, choose me, choose me. And he was always the last one chosen. But he always wanted to be chosen. And one Saturday, my son John was one of the captains, and he chose Benji first. I have never seen a guy so happy in my life. He was ecstatic. He was delirious with delight. It didn't matter that John put him way out in right field with a short fielder right in front of him to catch the ball. It didn't matter that he was going to bat last in the lineup. He had been chosen first. That's all that mattered to him. He didn't know enough about softball to know that the team that scored the most runs won. He thought the whole goal was to be chosen first. And he was chosen first. Well, that was Saturday. The next morning, we were usually about the first ones getting to church, except maybe for the custodian who opened up the church. And we were there early, early. But Buddy and his parents were already there. And when we pulled up, They jumped out of their car, they surrounded our car, and all three of them, mom, dad, and buddy, embraced John and thanked him for choosing him first. You know, it's good to be chosen, but it is exceptionally good to be chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw Peter and Andrew casting their nets into the sea. He said, hey guys. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. That was in Matthew chapter 4. 
In John chapter 1, he saw James and John mending their nets. He said, hey guys, follow me. I want you to be in my band of disciples. In Matthew 9, he saw Matthew at the receipt of custom. He said, hey Matthew, follow me. I want you to be a part of my disciples. In Luke 10, there were 70 men that he invited to be laborers in his harvest field. In Acts chapter 9, he arrested Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, called him to be an apostle as well. And I'm so thankful. When I was a 10-year-old boy, God arrested me and indicated to me that he wanted me to be a part of his forever family. And I'm sure that if you're here tonight and you're saved, you know deep in your heart that it's good to be wanted by God. I believe, John 3, 16, that whosoever believes can be saved. And the invitation is extended to all of us to trust him. So, in verse 6, we see that Zacchaeus came down from the tree and received him joyfully. At this point, Zacchaeus, having said, he sees me, he knows me, he wants me, said, he has me. So, he came down the tree and essentially gave his life to Christ. This is really the story of a poor man who became rich. The people in Jericho thought Zacchaeus was rich. But in reality, he was a poor, bankrupt sinner in need of God's gift of eternal life. This is the only place in the Bible, only place in the Gospels that we know of that Jesus invited himself to someone's home. But he goes to illustrate that passage in Revelation 3.20 where, where, where it says, where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Now, Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised to give half of his goods to the poor. He wasn't saved because he promised to make restitution to those whom he'd overcharged. He was saved because he gave his heart to Christ and believed in the words that Jesus spoke to him about salvation. You see, genuine faith is not a matter of pious words and devout feelings, but rather it is a living union with the Lord Jesus Christ that results in a changed life. In other words, if you are what you were, then you ain't. That's not good, Greg grammar but that's good theology because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 if any man be in Christ he is a new creation all things are passed away and behold all things are become new so here is Jesus going to the house of Zacchaeus and it's kind of interesting that Zacchaeus is the host but once Jesus comes into the house Jesus becomes the host And Zacchaeus becomes the guest because anytime Jesus comes into my house or your house, he's the master. So he has the right to be the host. That was okay with Zacchaeus because he wanted everyone to know that his faith was genuine and that he wanted to obey the Lord and do whatever he wanted him to do. 
I'm just wondering tonight if he has you. Can you say honestly and without any reservation, hesitation or qualification, he has me? He has all of me. I'll close with this story. A number of years ago, there was one of our Georgia Baptist pastors who went to Romania on a mission trip. The Iron Curtain had just come down. And uh, Christians were just now being permitted to go to the eastern part of Europe and preach and witness and minister. And so this Baptist pastor got connected with a pastor sod in Romania. And they were driving down the road, coming first to one communist checkpoint after another. Because there were still remnants of communism all over eastern Europe and they had to go through these checkpoints. Most of the checkpoints had three, maybe four uh, communist soldiers there. And they would ask them questions and permit them to continue on their way. But they came to this one checkpoint where there were 14 or 15 communist soldiers there. And they were brandishing their rapid fire rifles. And they uh, were speaking in harsh tones. And when they stopped the car of Pastor Saad... um, This Georgia Baptist pastor was frightened because he'd never seen this kind of hostility before. And they were talking to Pastor Saad in gruff, harsh tones. They told him to get out of the car. That had not happened before. They pushed them up against the wall and searched them. They had dogs sniff out their car and they looked in the trunk and they looked under the hood and they looked under the car. And they were talking, and this Georgia Baptist pastor had no idea what they were saying. He was afraid they were going to take them to jail or worse. But after about 15 minutes, they agreed that they could get back in the car and continue on their journey. As they continued on their journey, the Romanian pastor looked over at the Georgia Baptist pastor, and he had tears streaming down his cheeks. And the Romanian pastor said, what's the matter? What's, what's happened? And the Georgia Baptist pastor said, Pastor Son, I've got to tell you, I was frightened. I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't know if they were going to take us to jail or shoot us for that matter. I couldn't understand the language, but I knew they were angry. I'm so thankful we got through the checkpoint. Pastor Saad said, well, let me tell you what's happened to me through the years. He said, on multiple occasions, they have come to my church and arrested me. They've thrown me into a cell where I subsisted on bread and water for days after days. Occasionally, they would come in and strip me of my shirt, and they would whip me until my back was lacerated. They would hit me with their fists, and my teeth were loosened, and my eyes were black and blue. And this happened on repeated occasions. They'd come to my church and arrest me and take me away for days at a time, my family not knowing where I would be released or not. He said, on one occasion, they came. They arrested me. They took me to this jail. It was a dark, damp, dungy prison. And they left me there alone for days without any food or water. And finally, they came after about three days and they gave me bread and water. And then after I had eaten, they told me to to strip down my clothing and I had nothing on. And they said they were going to beat me, and they did. And then the captain of the KGB agents came to my cell. 
He pointed a gun at my forehead and he said, if you don't promise to quit preaching the gospel, I'm going to shoot you here and now and you will be a dead man. Do you understand? And Pastor Saad said it was amazing. In that moment, God took away my fear and the Holy Spirit told me what to say to the captain of the KGB agents. And I told him when he threatened me, if you don't let me go, I'm going to use my weapon on you. And the KGB captain said, wait a minute. I've just threatened you. Do you not understand what I said? If you don't quit preaching the gospel, I'm going to shoot you. You'll be a dead man. And Pastor Saad said, yes, I understand what you said. But if you use your weapon on me, I will be forced to use my weapon on you. Now, Pastor Saad has no clothes on. And so the captain of the KGB agent says, Search this man. They take off his handcuffs. They attempt to search him, though he has no clothes on him. They look at the captain. They say, look, he he has no clothes. He has no weapon. And so the captain says one more time, listen, this is the last time I'm saying this. But if you don't promise to quit preaching your gospel, I'm going to shoot you. You'll be dead in five seconds. Do you hear me? Once again, Pastor Saad said, very well, but if you use your weapon on me, I will be forced to use my weapon on you. And at that point, the Holy Spirit told him what his weapon was. He didn't know up until that time. And so the captain said, all right, what is your weapon? He said, my weapon will be my death. If you kill me, the people in my churches, and he was pastor of several churches in Eastern Europe. He said, the people in my churches will transcribe my sermons. They will duplicate them on cassette tapes. They will send them all over Eastern Europe to Moldova and Romania and Bulgaria and Kazakhstan and Georgia, the Republic of Georgia. And in my death, my message will go out in a greater way than if you permitted me to live. The captain thought for a moment and he turned to the guards and he says, Put this man's clothes on him and take him home. So they took him home. It was a Saturday night when he got home. He went to bed. He got up the next morning and he didn't feel like going to church. His eyes were black and blue. Some of his teeth were loose. He had those lacerations on his back, but he dressed. And he walked three miles to his church. When he got to his church, those same KGB agents were there to arrest him, he thought. And so he held out his hands like that for them to put handcuffs on him. And he said, and they said, we didn't come to arrest you. We came to protect you. Our captain said, we can't let anything happen to you. Pastor Saad said for months after that, they took him wherever he wanted to go and made sure that nothing happened to him. And those demonic guards became his guardian angels. As the Georgia Baptist pastor and the Romanian pastor continued on their journey, the Georgia Baptist pastor said to Pastor Saad, you've been to America You've been in churches in America. What do you see as the primary difference between the churches in America and the churches in Romania? Or the Christians in America and the Christians in Romania? And Pastor Saad said this. 
He said, well, you're right. I have been to the churches of America. A number of them. I've spoken in the churches. And I believe that many of the people in the churches in America are committed. But he said, you must understand that the people in the churches of Romania are surrendered. He said, the difference is you can determine your own degree of commitment. But when you're surrendered, you're totally yielded to God, not on your terms, but on his terms. I wonder if you can say that. Zacchaeus said, he had me, he has me. Can you say that he has you as a surrendered saint or as a committed Christian, whereby you're committed on your own terms rather than surrendered on God's terms? Let's pray.